0: Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC FM, and WTIC.com. We are pleased to be joined this Christmas Eve by Dr. Richard Freund. He is the director of the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies and Greenberg Professor of Jewish History at the University of Hartford. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. This was one of the favorite shows of the former host of this program, Sam Gingerella, whom we lost to to cancer earlier this year. You really built a bond with with Sam over the last 15 years or so. You
1: know, Sam uh, was very passionate about this show. Every year, he would call me two, three months in advance, and he says, you you remember, we're going to do the Christmas show. And every year, 15 years, uh, I would come and I would talk to him. At the end of the show, I'd always say to him, you know, Sam, I do take volunteers. You can come with me to Israel, to Greece, to Spain, and he'd say, oh, I wish, I wish. So one of the things that I, as we remember, Sam, this, uh, this day as we uh, talk about uh, these excavations, is we should always say to ourselves, there is never a good time. Okay, You should always think about trying to do these kinds of things because Sam really wanted to do this, and I wish he had done it. It would really have fulfilled a, a big circle for him.
0: And one of the things he was always interested in were the roots of Christmas and how they relate to Judaism.
1: Right. Right. I, uh, every year we, we have the same discussion <laughs> he would ask me, uh, and I think it, it is a, an important question. Where is it that Christmas comes from? Is there some kind of connection between uh, the Jewish roots of, uh, of Christmas? And I always would tell Sam that there was a unique understanding that I can give him about the Christmas, and that was that it is an unusual holiday that uh, starts in the evening. Christmas starts in the evening before the day. Now, that in itself is one of the first connections to Jewish holidays. Jew, all Jewish holidays start in the evening and then continue through the next day. But the second thing, which was very important, is there was never in any early uh, Christian uh, calendar the idea that uh, Jesus was born uh, in, in the wintertime in December, So how did it get located onto this very specific date of the 24th into the 25th? And it seems that the easiest connection is through the holiday of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which is the holiday of dedication of the temple, starts on the 25th day, actually on the 24th day, in the evening of the lunar month of Kislev. So the lunar month is uh, actually different than the solar month, but the fact that it starts on the 24th and goes starts on the 25th, it really does connect us immediately with the numbering of the day. Second thing is the name of the holiday of Hanukkah is the holiday of lights. Everyone who has ever read the Christmas story and ever tried to figure out what is the deal with the lights that everybody has on their houses? Where does that come from in Christianity? That comes from a very, very, very arbitrary use of the idea that, the whoa, the lights that directed the Magi. into. So therefore, we're in the middle of winter. It's good to have nice lights. But really, we think that the original purpose was that this was from the holiday of lights, the holiday of lights, which was Hanukkah the lighting of the candles that were for the rededication of the temple. And finally, the interesting thing about this uh, uh, this holiday is that Jesus would never have been able in swaddling cloth to have been outside in a cave near Bethlehem in this time of the year. Uh, this time of the year near Jerusalem and Bethlehem— are very cold. It's snowing. So the idea that the the people would have been visiting and going and and this was the time of the, the tax collection. That's why they went down to Bethlehem because they really live in Nazareth. Uh, all of this is connected to a very specific transformation, a morphing, if you will, of a holiday from Judaism that got new meaning in Christianity, but only three or four centuries after Jesus was no longer walking the face of the earth.
0: Are there artifacts that exist that help shed some light on
1: the roots of Christmas? You know, the, the, the one thing that we can say about uh, uh, Christmas is that the first calendar that was developed by uh, the new uh, Byzantine um, uh, government was only in the 4th century and the symbols of Christianity were totally changed by the 4th century. In the 1st century and in the 2nd century the symbols of Christianity were the fish. The, this was a, a symbol of the uh, occupation of the apostles. By the 4th century though they totally changed it and they made it into the, the crucifix this idea of the the uh, crucifixion would have been absolutely incomprehensible to first and second century christians so you can see how christianity built itself in the 4th century and that's why christmas occupies such an important place in this new christianity that develops uh, in the byzantine empire
0: now your research has brought you to locations around the globe Since you were here last, you've had a a special on NOVA, you've had a National Geographic special, and there is more ahead in in 2018. Tell us some of the things you're working on.
1: Well, for those of you who have been following this uh, Atlantis story, you can go online, you can follow the Atlantis story. One of our, our great Atlantis files, most people don't know this, in the world today is James Cameron who actually was involved with our last uh, Atlantis Rising documentary on National Geographic. It was on January, February, March of this year. And Atlantis Rising, James Cameron wanted to know, where is Atlantis? I thought it was in southern Spain. That's where we did our work. He says, but why are there so many other groups of of people throughout the Mediterranean who think they have Atlantis? I said, well, let's go there and see. So we visited the Azores. We visited Malta. We visited Sardinia. We visited Santorini, Crete. At each one of these locations, there was evidence of the same type of construction that we had found in southern Spain. So what I did, I basically uh, said was that this was what I call the Atlantis civilization. And all throughout this new Atlantis Rising documentary, you see evidence of the Atlantis civilization that began in southern Spain, I think, and then spread throughout the entire Mediterranean. And that's what that documentary does. And I can assure you (laughs) there will probably be a third uh, documentary on this. My first documentary in 2010 was called Finding Atlantis with National Geographic. Second is Atlantis Rising. And we'll see. But Atlantis, I have to tell you, is one of those topics that does grab people all throughout the world. So that was in in, uh, 2017. And then in um, April... And May and June was the premiere of the new television documentary on Nova uh, called The Holocaust Escape Tunnel, which I I have to say, since I was promoting both documentaries, it was something that touched people all over the world. I don't know what it was about finding a Holocaust escape tunnel in the middle of burial pits, in the middle of of Lithuania, but this escape tunnel, which was a 110 feet long, and where the prisoners escaped out of burial pits in the middle of a forest outside of Vilnius, was seen as so <laughs> improbable. But we found the we found the um the escape tunnel And we were able to document it along with our other work that we were working on in Vilnius. In Vilnius, we're working on a project, which is a a major project, uh, for the excavation of the Great Synagogue of Vilnius. And the Great Synagogue of Vilnius is not just like a regular synagogue. It's a synagogue about the size of, of the small Vatican, It was a community center and synagogue size of two football fields, back-to-back. It was destroyed by the Nazis, demolished by the Soviets, but they didn't know that the great synagogue had a secret. The secret was when the Jews wanted to build the tallest religious building in Vilnius in the 17th and 18th century... It was a rule, the ecclesiastical rule in Vilnius was you couldn't build it any higher than the highest church. What did the Jews do? Instead of building up, they built down. And they built the synagogue two stories below the street. And you would come into the synagogue and you'd walk two flights of stairs down to the main area of the synagogue. And so when the Nazis destroyed the synagogue and when the Soviets demolished it, What they did was they basically bulldozed it over. They put, by by the way, a big cement cap on top and built an elementary school on top, ironically preserving everything, everything from the great synagogue inside this uh, capped area. So we use a a very special technique. And for those people who have been following us for years, I can just, I'll say it out loud so everybody can hear it. We use ground-penetrating radar, and we use another technique called electrical resistivity tomography, and these are two subsurface mapping uh, techniques that are used in gas and oil exploration, and we can see below the, uh, the ground some 30, 40, 50 feet below the ground, and we can map everything that's below the surface, and then we excavate. But we only excavate when we know that there are things to excavate. Uh, In this case, uh, it was very important because now we know exactly where everything in the great synagogue uh, is underneath the elementary school. And we've been excavating now in the playground for the past two years. And the amazing thing is we excavate in the playground. We finish during the summer. We cover it up. Because we have GPS coordinates exactly to go back to the same location every, every summer when we come back to excavate. So that was uh, uh, part of the uh, NOVA special. Uh, it shows us excavating in the Great Synagogue. But it also the same type of geoscience and archaeology allowed us to go to the burial pits of this area called Ponar outside of Vilnius and find this escape tunnel. And that's the amazing thing, because no one could ever use traditional archeology span to excavate to find this, except with this kind of geoscience that sees below the surface. Could we have gone back, looked for the escape tunnel, found it, and now they're gonna document the the entire area in a new museum there at the site uh, that shows people Look, the Holocaust is a very sad, sad moment in human history. If we can do anything to allow people to understand the Holocaust, not as a story of death, but a story of great courage, that's what this story does. So the Holocaust escape tunnel is about how people, against all odds, dug with their hands and spoons their way out of this burial pit. And it really, I have to say... Uh I've been around the world now for premieres in, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Lithuania, and I was in Sao Paulo, and I was in Buenos Aires and Santiago de Chile, and I was in uh, all the different premieres in, in the United States. And I'm never surprised to hear just how meaningful it is for people to hear that people against all odds could still have that sense of courage. And that's a message for, that we can learn from the Holocaust. That is not just about death and dying. So, um, yeah. So that was that. That documentary did, did uh, show all over the world already. And this summer, we worked on another documentary. Uh, this documentary will be on in 2018. So I'll I'll tell you just a little bit about it, so that you'll look for it on TV. It's called The Good Nazi. And it's about a story of a Nazi officer in the outskirts of Vilnius who decided, like Oscar Schindler did in Schindler's List, that he was going to save as many Jews as he could. And he drew up lists of people from the Vilna ghetto, and he put them in an apartment building on the outskirts of town, and he built around them what they call HKP, a... Um, a vehicle repair shop, and it was men, women, and children that were in these apartments. And this major plague, this Nazi major plague, attempted to save 1,257 Jewish men, women, and children in these apartments by giving them work. And he thought he was going to be able to wait out the entire end of the war, and basically he gave them the green light to do one thing that for us became an obsession in archaeology. He told them to build hiding places. And they built hiding places in the apartments. And so on July 1st, when the SS came in to liquidate the camp, and Major Plaga assembled all the Jews, he told them, tomorrow the SS are going to come... And they're going to take care of you. You know how the SS can take care of you. You should do what you need to do. And they went into hiding. And so the people that survived, and this is the largest group of Jews that were able to survive from uh, the Vilna Ghetto, which was really the, Vilna was the the Jerusalem of Lithuania. Uh, It was an amazing place. And they survived because they hid now, you would think 75 years later, these apartments would have been renovated. The apartments have not been renovated. There's people living in them. So this summer, using infrared cameras, concrete scanners, ground-penetrating radar, we looked through people's walls underneath their in their basements, and we found some of their hiding places. And I'll tell you that there's nothing more rewarding to go and knock on someone's door... Uh, we'd like to see if you have some of the hiding places from the Holocaust still in your, uh, in your apartment. And the people who are living there, they're still living there, uh, said, do you think they're still there? And to find them still there after 75 years is really, really what archaeology can do.
0: You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Dr. Richard Freund. He is the director of the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies and the Greenberg Professor of Jewish History at the University of Hartford. When you were going through these hiding places in this apartment building, you actually brought back some of the survivors to help in your research. Right,
1: and this is the amazing thing, is that because there were men, women, and children who were survivors of this camp, uh, we brought some of the children— were children in those those days so now they're in their their 80s and they were able to actually show us where they were where they hid and it, it really is it, it, a uh, a labor of love for archaeologists to go into the field to be able to use these new uh, technologies to rediscover places before they're they're destroyed because this is a this is an apartment building. It's already over a hundred years old. It's only been renovated, I think, once, and it uh, it's still there in the same place. And to be able to go and to to, to actually uh, identify these places before people's memories are gone, and to go back and to show what people's courage. Gave them the ability to do in very difficult times. I mean, this is this is what I think not only makes a good television documentary, but it makes good archaeology.
0: Returning to the the theme of of Christmas tomorrow, you have also been
1: working at the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, right? And I, I have to say, this is Sam. Sam and I had this conversation many. I was working fifteen years on this project, and what we discovered was. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation—by the way, there are two churches of the Annunciation in, um, in Nazareth. For those of you who uh, are wondering what the Church of the Annunciation tradition is, this is where Mary, mother of Jesus, has this announcement of the birth of Jesus in Nazareth. Now, his mother, uh, Jesus' mother and father, uh, Joseph and Mary, were from Nazareth— and so we always call him Jesus of Nazareth. Well, the event, which was the announcement of the birth of Jesus, uh, took place in Nazareth. By the way, six months before, it had to be six months before um, uh, Christmas. So that we, you know, we, we're talking about uh, the, the idea of the way they understood the gestation period so, Jesus is born in Nazareth, lives in Nazareth until, of course, he ends his days in Jerusalem. But the Church of the Annunciation is built by the Greek Orthodox on top of a fountain, an area where there's water. Uh, why is that so important? Because it says, in not in the canonical New Testament, but in the writings written by early Christians, that it took. Place, the announcement of the birth of Jesus took place with Mary at the well. And the angel Gabriel came to her and said, You will have a child, and he will be Jesus. He will be the Messiah. So we were excavating around the church, and again, using non invasive means, because we don't want to destroy a 1,500 year old church. And uh, I said to the bishop, I said, you know, you have something about six feet below the present church. If you'd like, we can excavate that. And, of course, we don't want to rip up a 1,500-year-old church. We started excavations in the back, and we found the original church floor that goes back literally to the time when first churches were being built in Israel um, by Queen Helena the mother of Constantine the Great. And to find the original floor of this original church in Nazareth uh, is something near spectacular because the church has been destroyed multiple times, rebuilt multiple times. And down the street from the Greek Orthodox Church is the basilica where the house of Mary and Joseph is inside of the roman catholic church of the annunciation so right now after working 15 years in in, um, in nazareth they're going to be reconstructing the original floor area of this original church of uh, the church in the annunciation so in one summer i got to do atlantis i got to do the holocaust and the origins of Christianity and
0: span in our last minute or so just wondering if you could provide some insights for us on the recent announcement that the US is moving its embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and the significance of that
1: the idea that the capital of uh, the, the modern state of Israel is in in, in Jerusalem is not a novelty it's uh, it, that's where the Israelis established their their capital in West uh, Jerusalem um, all the way back in the beginnings of 1948. So we're not talking about something that really is a novelty that's just being uh, uh, raised now. What we're talking about, though, is something that for Israelis is very, very important. They have seen their capital as Jerusalem uh, since the beginning of 1948. It also is, however an extremely important part of Muslim culture. And, of course, for Christianity, Jerusalem always holds uh, with it. uh, Very, very important uh, echoes of what happened in those days uh, during the crucifixion.
0: He is Dr. Richard Freund,
1: the director of the
0: Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Hartford. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. Merry Christmas and enjoy the balance of your holiday weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio.